0: Matthew 18:15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the promise that we have in Scripture, that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are also. And God, we live in that promise. God, we want your manifest presence to be known among us and felt among us tonight as we do worship you. But Lord, we also need to look at where that promise is given in the Bible and how you give that promise to your church to walk through difficulties, Uh, Namely, uh, problems between brothers and sisters in Christ that involve sin. And so God, we pray that you would help us as we look to navigate the chaotic waters of sin in the church. As we deal with confrontation and dealing with conflict in a way that would honor the name of Jesus Christ and the presence of Jesus Christ. God, that we would be able to walk through times where we need to discipline, encourage, admonish one another so we can keep your church holy as you are holy. And so God, would you help us to navigate those waters tonight as we look at a text that helps us see how difficult it is to confront a Christian who is in sin, to have that conversation that needs to be had. God, would you help us to see what your word has for us on this topic and be able to apply it to our lives that would not make us these uppity, judgmental people that you do not want us to be, but gracious and loving, yet confrontational people when that confrontation has marvelous purpose, to see people restored and reconciled to you and to keep your church holy. So God, would you bless our time together And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're currently going through a study through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn in them to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book of the Bible that was written by the Apostle Paul as a letter of reproof to the church in Corinth. Uh, Deep divisions had formed in the church around different teaching personalities. Paul appealed to the church to pursue gospel unity by humbling themselves and viewing their teachers accurately, Uh, not to put them on a pedestal as some great rhetoricians, as was common in Corinth, but as mere messengers who faithfully communicated the wisdom and the power of God. The apostles that they looked up to, one of whom was Paul, were mere servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. And in our time together two weeks ago, we saw how all Christians should aim towards faithfulness for their measure of success, especially leaders in the church. Paul then moves on to tackle another issue that was causing division in the church, something else that was reported to him. And so we're going to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, as we continue this series through First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter five verses one through thirteen, say this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, as you are as you really are unleavened for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual sexually immoral people Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is a heavy text. So thank you for... Uh, releasing us of our burdens that we've been walking in today. But uh, Lord, help us to process this text, to rightly interpret it, and as well as apply it to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Tonight's sermon is entitled, Confronting Sin in Christians. Confronting Sin in Christians. And from this text, I want to show you four reasons that confronting sin is so difficult. Why is it so difficult? Well, I want to give you four reasons why confronting sin in Christians is so difficult. The first of which, confronting sin in Christians is sorrowful. Confronting sin in Christians is sorrowful. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, Paul says to the Corinthians. Ought you not rather to mourn? So that is the proper response. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Paul has received a report about sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. And he is concerned to say the least. Corinth was a city known for its debauchery and even temple prostitution. But even that pagan city looked down on the sin that was being committed by someone who claimed to be a born-again Christian. This man was in an incestuous relationship, having sexual intercourse with a woman who was apparently his stepmother. Yikes! What's even worse is that the church was proud of the inclusion when they should have been sorrowful. Rebellion breaks the heart of God. Does it not? Especially when the church not only allows it, but affirms it and accepts it with open arms. That goes for any sin not just sexual sin. We find it difficult to confront sin because we don't like to be sad. Mourning is uncomfortable for us. We'd rather not involve ourselves in what breaks the heart of God. We will oftentimes avoid it at all costs. Paul doesn't let the Corinthians accept this man and his sin. He urges them, to remove him from the church. God won't allow us to avoid becoming emotionally invested in our relationships with Christians who are in blatant sin. And I want to clarify, Christians who are in sin, as I'm saying, are those who have made it a pattern of committing sin against God. They are committed to their rebellion, not merely struggling with I want to make that distinction. It's it's a pattern of unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of sinful behavior, not a mere slip-up. This man was committed to having a romantic relationship with a woman married to his father. It's wrong. And Paul's direction is to mourn and remove him from the church. Confronting sin in Christians is sorrowful. But secondly, it's also weighty. Confronting sin in Christians is weighty. Look at verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, Paul says. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's weighty. But what, what, what's at the root of it? What's the goal? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Paul isn't with the church at Corinth physically, right? He makes that known. He's in Ephesus at the time. But he is with them spiritually. This is similar to our scripture reading where Jesus tells his disciples that when they go to discipline someone in the church, he is present with them, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, he promises. And isn't it interesting that that promise that we quote so often falls in a passage about church discipline, yet we hardly ever talk about that verse in its original context. Thankfully, Paul gives us a case study here in 1 Corinthians that we cannot avoid. Paul wasn't with them physically, but he was with them spiritually. It is almost as if he was there physically pronouncing judgment over this man. It is expected of the church that they would assemble. Did you notice that? Assembling in the name of the Lord. This is the name that they all have called on to be their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we saw in chapter 1 that allows them to have Unity that they are saints together who have called on the name of the Lord, and so they gather, they make it a routine of gathering, assembling, remembering that this is the name that unites them. And as a church, they make it they have to make it a point to remove this man. Right when they come together, church is in a building, it's an assembly of saints, and they are gathering, and when they gather. They are prompted by Paul's spiritual presence and the power of the Lord Jesus to do something weighty. The Corinthians are commanded to deliver the man to Satan as a form of discipline. And we are told of the potential two-fold outcome. It will likely destroy that man's flesh. And so we think back to the book of Job, right, where God... Allows for Satan to touch the body of Job and a sickness comes over him, right? This is a test. God does not tempt Job, but he allows for Satan to access him to test Job. And so we get hints of that here. But it could also potentially save his spirit at the day of judgment. That's the goal. It's weighty, right? Because eternity is at stake. Our enemy, Satan, comes into play to torment someone outside the will of God. And in God's economy, that may just be what sends the unrepentant sinner towards repentance to turn him from his sin. It's weighty. Third, Confronting sin in Christians is purposeful. It's purposeful. We see that in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Confronting sin in Christians is purposeful. The pride the Corinthians have about including this man who had given himself over to romantic feelings for his stepmother was not good. In other words, it does not please God. And it will not please God if this sin remains both in this man and the church. And this is why Paul poses a rhetorical question stating an important truth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what does that mean? Some of you guys are like, what's leaven? Right? We had leaven the other night, didn't we? We had uh, focaccia bread. Anybody know what focaccia bread is? It's my favorite bread right now. It's... So Anna does this thing where she makes soup in the fall uh, because it's like comfort food, and it's like I call it a, a, a bread bath, uh, bread hot tub. That's what I do because I because I like to break off my ba- my bread and dip it in the, the soup and just let it soak for a little while and then eat it. And it's delicious. And but I was noting this focaccia bread. I don't know if you know anything about focaccia bread, but it's not very tall. It's not very raised up. So I was like, oh man, that because I knew this was coming up, I was like, oh, that focaccia bread doesn't look like it has much leaven. She's like, oh, there's leaven in there. She's very informative when it comes to all things cooking. I was surprised, right? Leaven is any substance like yeast used to produce fermentation in dough. It is the main ingredient that causes bread to rise in preparation for baking. The whole lump here refers to an entire batch of dough. And in Paul's analogy, denotes the whole congregation of believers. So in this passage, leaven symbolizes sin and corruption. So in other words, what is Paul communicating when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's saying a little sin corrupts the whole congregation of believers. That's his illustration. A little sin corrupts a whole congregation of believers. So Paul commands the church to cleanse out the old leaven and be a new lump with no leaven, no sin. Paul's reason for this is that Jesus, the Passover lamb, as he calls him, has been sacrificed. Jesus indeed is our Passover lamb. When Christ died on the cross, His blood was spilled to protect us from God's wrath. Just as in the book of Exodus in the Old Covenant, the blood spread over the door frames of the Hebrews' home, protected them in Egypt during what was called the Passover. When we do the hard work of confronting Christians in sin, we are honoring the sacrifice of Jesus. We are addressing sin that Jesus died for and holding Christians accountable to confess and repent of that sin so that the church may be kept holy. Thus, there is a great purpose in confronting sin in Christians. And much like anything with purpose, it is difficult. It is difficult. And then the fourth reason confronting sin in Christians is difficult is that it's messy. It's messy. And we see that in verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is found guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Confronting sin in Christians is messy. Paul continues to draw on this illustration he has made to present a better way for the Corinthians. He directs them to celebrate the Passover festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what he's given them to aim for. But it's hard work, right? Because they cannot and should not celebrate the festival with the old leaven of malice and evil. It's, it's two very different ways to live. Sincerity and truth or malice and evil. In verse 9, we see that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians prior to what we know as First Corinthians. And in it, he warned them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But as he goes on, he clarifies that, that he did not mean sexually immoral people in the world because then it would be hard to associate with anyone, right? You'd have to pack up your bags and go be a hermit out in isolation somewhere to try and get rid of that. Paul's concern, as he continues to nuance his instructions, is that the Corinthians would abstain from associating with anyone who bears the name of brother, What would make them a brother? It's that they're children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they bear the name of brother, yet are guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, or swindling, uh, scheming, that they are not to associate with them. He says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, that could mean socially, as we tend to read automatically, or it could mean the Lord's Supper, as he'll mention that later in 1 Corinthians. Regardless, either way, it has huge implications and establishes boundaries of fellowship among Christians. Paul has no interest in judging or evaluating those outside the church. Neither should we. It may sound surprising, but the church, the church is supposed to judge or evaluate, if you like, herself. Paul assures his audience that God will judge those outside the church. But he commands the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, to purge the evil person from among them. That's messy. But it should be said that it's messy because sin is messy. Isn't it? People make a mess of their lives when they give themselves over to their sin. It is the hard work of the church to keep herself Holy, which brings us to our main point for the night, our main point. Confronting sin in Christians is difficult, yet it is necessary to keep the church holy. Confronting sin in Christians is difficult. It's sorrowful, it's weighty, it's purposeful and messy, yet it is necessary to keep the church holy, as God is holy. So how do we do that? We may not even see that done well. So how are we expected to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are in sin? Again, not that they're stumbling, struggling through it, slip up. I'm talking about a pattern of sinful behavior that goes on unrepentant that they have committed their lives to indulging in that sin. Needs to be confronted, doesn't it? If we are the bride of Christ and we are meant to be pure, holy, blameless before our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So six steps to confront sin in another Christian. I want to give you six steps to confront sin in another Christian. The first, confess your own sin. All right, we've entered into a time of confession before our worship service tonight. Confess your own sin. None of us want to be hypocrites. We have to assess our own lives before we start picking fights with sin in other people. And Jesus spoke to this in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3-5. through 5, He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye that is Jesus using humor to convey a solid application. You have to confront sin in your own life before confronting it in another. Confess your sin to God and repent from it. And one of those sins that you need to probably confess of is where you didn't confront someone's sin in the past. So that brings us to our second step to confront sin in another Christian. Confess where you have sidestepped confronting sin in another brother or sister in Christ. Confess that sin specifically. You do not help your brother or sister in Christ when you avoid conflict with them. It is cruel to let them continue in their sin if you have knowledge that what they're doing is sin. We see what is expected of us in Scripture from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. The author of Hebrews, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, "'Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful.'" And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, admonishing one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Two things are expected of us as Christians in light of these two verses. One, the author says, not to neglect meeting together as some make it a habit of doing. I'll say this right now. I was joking about need to breathe earlier. Our brothers and sisters who enjoy good musical talent on a Wednesday night are not in sin because we feel their absence because they come on a regular basis. I love those people. And honestly, if I wasn't pastor of the Young Adults Ministry, I might be there myself. No, they're not in sin. It's the people who are born-again Christians and yet neglect the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day who are in sin. It is expected of us that we would meet with other Christians routinely, almost continually, as we see the day drawing near. And it's because we need it. The question is, do you realize you need it? And two, we are expected to stir one another up to love and good works. We must encourage and admonish one another. That is to challenge sin in each other's lives with the gospel. That's what is expected of us in light of this verse. That we would meet together. And we would be intentional about challenging sin in each other's lives with the gospel we have accepted. Why? Because the day of judgment is drawing near. Isn't that Paul's point? He's mentioned the day of judgment twice in the last two chapters from 1 Corinthians, and he does so again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is expected that we meet as a church and that we do battle alongside each other. And many of us have punted on that battle as we let our Christian friends go on living and giving themselves over to sexual immorality, greed, schemes, idolatry, and drunkenness, and more. We must confess where we've sidestepped confronting sin in people we say we care about. So we confess that. Third step, conform your emotions to feel accurately about sin. Conform your emotions to feel accurately about sin. When confronting sin in our fellow Christians' lives, we should feel sorrowful and weighed down, right? We've assessed that from the text. Paul makes it clear that we are to feel the weight of sin in others in his letter to the Galatians. He says in Galatians 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's important. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And here's what he says. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Sin is so awful and repugnant to God that it costs the life of Jesus. Jesus. We must feel the sorrow that the sin in our brother or sister sent Jesus to the cross. We don't really want to think about that, but it's, it is something we need to think about, process, and force our feelings to follow us in. You may say, cross, how do I force my feelings to follow? I'm so used to letting them lead the way. Requires thought, conscious thought, and action, deliberate action. For example, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. When we pause to reflect on the reality of what that sin and a brother or sister in Christ did to Jesus, and then intercede on behalf of that person in prayer. It moves us emotionally, right? Prayer does things to see God move. Prayer also does things to see us move. It should move you emotionally when you intercede the throne room of our triune God on behalf of somebody who wants nothing to do with him especially if they call themselves a Christian. But not only that, fasting, we, when we abstain from food for a day so that our body groans, we conform our emotions to feel accurately about sin. That when you feel that hunger pain, that your body groans And you are conforming your emotions to feel what they should feel when it comes to things of sin and spiritual matters. And while we're in that burdened state of sorrow, we, step four, concentrate on the purpose behind confrontation. Concentrate on the purpose behind confrontation. The end goal of confronting our brothers and sisters and their is their restoration to Christ and holiness in His church. It's that they might be restored in their relationship with Jesus and that the church would reflect His holiness. We want to see them restored in their relationship with Jesus by way of repentance and that he or she would resemble Christ in the local church. And that's what we read in Matthew's gospel for our scripture reading, isn't it? When Joel read Matthew chapter 18 verse 15, if your brother's if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, here's your reward, you gained your brother. The goal is that we would regain a brother who was wandering. But regardless of what he decides, whether that is to continue in his sinful lifestyle or repent, The concern is for the holiness of the church, which is why Jesus goes on to say, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the assembly, the gathering of the saints, the ecclesia, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why does the church have to get involved? Why do they have to shun him if he refuses to repent? It's because he's not pursuing a life of holiness. And the bride of Christ, the church, is meant to live out her reality the reality of her purity. She has been declared righteous by the saving work of Jesus. So she must live in a manner worthy of the gospel that has saved her. Our shared goal as the church is to live out that holiness that Jesus has purchased for us by His blood as our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. And when someone in the church blatantly conducts themselves in a a manner unbecoming of a Christian, yeah, he or she must be purged. But this is only after attempts have been made to restore them by way of willful repentance. Step five. Call on the Lord for wisdom and power to handle those conversations. Call on the Lord for wisdom and power to handle those conversations. Confronting another Christian in their sin is messy and it is weighty. And if we try to do it on our own, we will fail miserably. We'll make the mess messier. We will add weight to an already burgeoning load of sin. We need the wisdom and the power of God. Fortunately, that is what we have with the gospel. And that's what Paul has explained to the Corinthians earlier, that the gospel is the wisdom and power of God to those who are being saved. It confounds the prideful, it weakens the worldly, and we have access to it. Because he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, we preach Christ crucified. That's his summation of the gospel. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, to those being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ and Him crucified, that is the of God and the wisdom of God. We call on God to provide us the wisdom and the power of the gospel that he would go before us in our conversations and reign supreme. We ask God to do what he enjoys doing, and that's reconciling people back to himself. The gospel is the only answer to fighting sin. So we tap into the wisdom and power of God to confront those who call themselves Christians and at one time agreed to follow Jesus with their lives and yet have established a pattern of practicing lawlessness. We pray that the Lord would soften their hearts to be reminded of the gospel. And then finally, step six. Confront sin in the Christians you know well enough to speak into their lives. Confront sin in the Christians you know well enough to speak into their lives. This is what we've been working towards. It's easily the hardest part. <laughs> but if we've done the prep work, it may end up saving someone's life. We must confront sin in the Christian, but where do we start? Do we interrogate any old person who claims to be a Christian we see doing something we disagree with? No, don't start there. No, we don't do that. That is not a gospel-empowered approach. We start with the church, namely Bellevue Baptist Church. Specifically, the Young Adults Ministry at Bellevue Baptist Church. And if I can shrink down your field of prospects even more, it's the men and women in this ministry who you are closest to. Let's start there. And this is why it is so important to know people and make yourself known. Those who shy away from community and withhold themselves personally, Hurt their own pursuit of holiness. They live in faux community and actual isolation. When you make yourself available to meet brothers and sisters on a regular basis, you invite corrections that will make you more like Jesus. And simultaneously, you are able to offer up the same kind of corrections to men and women that you know full and well have professed faith in Jesus and yet may be living in sin. You are able to walk through these steps, confront sin in other Christians, and even receive correction when it's your turn. Confronting sin in Christians Is difficult work, right? We've seen that. It's sorrowful. It's weighty. It has purpose, yes, but it is messy. It's difficult work, but it's absolutely necessary in order to keep the church holy. So may we access the wisdom and the power of God to confront and correct our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are in sin. And we live in the hope that Paul mentions at the beginning of this book, 1 Corinthians. We have hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain us all to the end. Guiltless. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.